I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Cindy Murphy. Cindy served in law enforcement for more than 30 years, 25 of those years at the Madison Police Department of Wisconsin, before leaving the force to launch Gilware Digital Forensics, where she is now the co-owner and serves as president and lead examiner. Her peers have called her one of the most dedicated people in the field of digital forensics. Cindy has also been teaching digital forensics since 2002, is a certified SANS instructor, and helped develop the SANS mobile device and advanced smartphone forensic courses. Her extensive experience has given her both the real-world experience and the foundation and training that it takes to excel in the mobile forensics field. Throughout her career, Cindy has always looked for opportunities to help in meaningful ways. There's one notable case that I found where experts spent a year trying to unlock the phone of a 16-year-old girl who was tragically killed in a car accident. As the family prepared to spread the girl's ashes in a cemetery a year after her death, Cindy was given the victim's locked phone. She was able to unlock it, enabling the family to see their daughter's last photos. The family sent Cindy a thank you note that said, We so appreciate this opportunity you've given us to hold on to a piece of our daughter's life we were sure was lost to us. This is just one example of how digital forensics and a good examiner can have a tremendously positive impact in people's lives. Cindy has also developed the Fraternal Clone Method for Cell Phones, a Forensic Forecast Forensic Examiner of the Year Award winner, a SANS People Who Made a Difference in Security Award winner, and was named a 2016 Women of Influence in IT Security by SC Magazine. She's also one of the nicest and most approachable people in cybersecurity and digital forensics. In this interview, we discuss starting digital forensics in law enforcement, how she started with mobile forensics in the early 2000s, moving from law enforcement to the private sector, the concerns she has with mobile phones, recruiting and retraining women in DFIR, developing SANS mobile forensics courses, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Cindy, thank you for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you, Doug. It's good to be here. Great. Thanks for doing this. And, um, you know, we'll, I'll put in the show notes some of your background and, and information about how you kind of came to where you are. But I'd love to kind of hear your story. I mean, you were an officer, officer of the law, and at some point picked up digital forensics. How did that kind of come about? Well, um, I guess I, you could say I literally fell into it. Um, and and that's the absolute truth. Uh, I had been um, an MP in the military for three years, uh, moved on to working for the Department of Veterans Affairs, was still a patrol cop there, um, moved to the Madison Police Department in 91, and then in um, late 1998, I um, was involved in a foot chase after a bank robbery, um, chasing a guy with a gun, and uh, he jumped over a fence, and I jumped over the fence after him. Um, and I didn't quite clear the fence. Um, 
<laughs> but the fence uh, was uh, was the thing that uh, that made the gun fell out of his clothes and so fall out of his clothes and so when I caught him he was unarmed um, and I did catch him but um, by the time I back up got there, uh, they uh, said to me, hey, Cindy, do you realize you're bleeding? And I didn't know I was bleeding. Um, I had lacerated a hamstring, screwed up my lower back, um, and um, was uh, in for a long healing process. And I don't sit still very well. I'm not a particularly good um, patient. I don't have the patience for it. So uh, I needed to keep my brain busy and uh, ended up cross-training with uh, a detective by the name of John Mulcahy, who um, was doing some really rudimentary first steps into looking at uh, digital forensics for our department. And he um, sort of took me under his wing, taught me what he knew, um, and I started working on my first case. Um, which happened uh, to have Owen Casey on the other end of it. Um, strangely enough, we didn't put that together for years. But uh, it is a small world in forensics. And so at some point, though, you seem to kind of move heavily into more of the mobile forensic space. What drew you into that subset of information security and digital forensics? Ah, like everything else in this field, necessity. Um, that's that's the way um, evidence moved. So um, in in this in the world of digital forensics, it feels like we're often sort of chasing the latest trends. Um, but what is popular on the street and what people are using every day ends up being what we need to learn. And so um, so you can start to predict what's going to come next. Uh, really, I got into mobile forensics out of necessity. Um, in the early 2000s because um, phones started coming into the lab for examination and um, and we didn't have the tools or techniques to deal with them um, and there wasn't a whole lot out there in the community about how to deal with them and so um, so I started with a group of other people to try to lay that um, that groundwork and um, wrap some of the skills and techniques um, from digital forensics around um, the challenges of mobile forensics. Yeah, and uh, you know, certainly mobile forensics has kind of grown to its own art and science. But what are some of the common misconceptions that you found over the years that people kind of equate with you know, regular digital forensics with phone forensics of, hey, why can't I just do this? Or, you know, can you just give me that as, you know, we might find with certain things on a computer hard drive is not the same when you deal with mobile. I, I think a lot of them have to do with uh, flash memory um, and the differences between, you know, traditional hard drive forensics and flash memory. Um, a lot of them have to do with um, the fact that we we can't get that that nice, true, full um, forensics image on um, on a lot of phones that we're examining. Um, that phones are inherently active devices. Um, you can't write protect them. Um, we need to to work with them directly a lot of times in order to get data out of them, especially um, if you're not um, in a position to be able to do um, chip off forensics. Um, and, and we can't do that all the time because it's destructive. So there, I mean, there are a lot of differences, and people tend to come into the field. Um, you know, sort of uh, unaware of all of those intricacies of, of phones. And, um, you know, 
we're getting to a point where the platforms are sort of um, sorting themselves out now. We've got mainly Androids and iOS devices, and each have their own um, challenges, and uh, and so it's a it's a little bit easier to um, to specialize and wrap your head around the particular problems of particular models, but. Um, but there are just so many different phones out there that the, the challenges are um, are endless. So, therefore, it's a field I really like. <laughs> it's always a puzzle to solve. <laughs> so. Yes, for sure. And I know you've developed some different processes, in particular the uh, fraternal clone method for cell phones. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how that got developed? Sure. So this is it's it's sort of a um, sort of a unicorn kind of thing. Um, I had. Uh, a single case um, involving a homicide that remains unsolved to this day um, where a phone was found broken in half at the scene. And uh, this was back in the early days of mobile forensics in this country. I think the Europeans were a little bit ahead of us, but um, at least the correct half of the phone had been left behind. So I I knew I had the data in the phone. I knew I needed to get it out of the phone. Um, None of the tools would address the phone in the condition it was um, fully enough to um, to see what I needed to see. Um, and so I um, needed to find a way to accomplish that. Um, these days, I would say, um, you know, it's a simple board swap problem. <laughs> and <laughs> I would uh, just take the, the, the board out of that phone and swap it into uh, a different piece of hardware. Um, in those days, uh, when that idea was presented, my, my bosses uh, thought it was uh, way too far out there. Um, and so I ended up having to come up with different ways to solve that problem, which um, in the end included taking um, the user data out of that phone and um, injecting it into um, uh, other phones of the same make and model um, in order to look at uh, the phone in the way the user had seen it. Um, so not a perfect clone, obviously, because uh, system uh, files are going to be different, but um, but enough of a clone to uh, get to the information that I needed to get to. And um, knowing how court systems work, uh, I wrote the paper, presented the paper, had uh, the method tested at Purdue and at Champlain by a bunch of, uh, you know, students looking for a project and uh, had it uh, validated and um, and then um, and have been sitting, you know, patiently waiting for the case to get solved in case I ever need to testify about what I did. But uh, the, the I, I guess the point is that we have to always think about the groundwork we lay um, as we're developing um, new creative methods to do things. And that groundwork um, is um, as important as the methods we develop themselves. Um, and um, so we can go out on a limb and, and do creative new things, but um, but we need to make sure that uh, that we're following a process that's repeatable, um, so so that it is in um, in the realm of science. Right. It would. I guess you know that's kind of always been that that challenge that we have as investigators and forensics as that. You know, court validated tool or a forensically sound tool, but what you know, what is it that makes something uh, a forensically sound process? 
Well, we need to be following the scientific method, and part of that is um, is in not keeping secret sauce. I mean, people over time have talked about how much I share about what I do and um, and how I do what I do. I, I do that because that's science, right? Um, we When we write things and share things and um, reproduce what other people have done and either come up with similar findings or slightly different findings, we're we're honing the craft and moving it forward um, for um, for those who come, uh, you know, beside us and behind us. Um, and um, and the more we document, the more we write about what we do, the more we share um, what our processes are, the more legitimate the whole um, field becomes. So, um, as I said, we come across all these unique problems. Um, probably especially in mobile forensics, but also uh, in other areas. I mean, um, I, I'm now looking uh, more deeply at flash memory forensics and, um, and artifacts that, uh, well, not just artifacts, full files that exist on flash memory that, that reads all zeros. Um, and, um, and looking at the methods to get to that data uh, past a controller board and um, looking at the things that, um, you know, once would have seemed impossible to do. Um, and as, as you look at all those new exciting things, um, we, we have to remember that um, testing and, um, you know, reproducing our own results and pushing that out to the community for other people to, to repeat um, and publishing and presenting and, and sharing um, is as important as um, those leaps forward that we're taking. So while there's a temptation to keep, um, you know, the, the really cool solutions um, uh, close to your chest and there's a need for that because because um, people want to make money in this business too right especially tool developers um, as a, as a field we have to remember that um, that we are engaging in um, in science and therefore the scientific method is what we need to, to fall back on um, as the structure for moving forward Definitely. And one of the things, too, you know, outside of the science is kind of the heart that goes with it, too. And many of the folks I spoke to either on this podcast or just even leading up to the podcast and different industry events and just even my peers are talking about how rewarding some of this work can be on a very personal level. So kind of looking back at, at your work, particularly in, in law enforcement, was there any particular cases that you worked on with digital forensics that you found particularly rewarding? Oh my God! Um, yes, well, it's so many. Um, you know the the work that law enforcement forensic examiners do is um, it is so important. And um, when you're dealing with forensics in that field, um, you're you're literally dealing with um, you know life and death situations in somebody's life or life altering situations and. Um, and you are seeking, you know, some truth about some aspect of, of what happened under those circumstances. Um, so particular cases, man, there are so many, I mean, whether it's, um, whether it's some of the, the more recent DDoS cases, which I don't think are yet adjudicated or whether it's, um, 
whether it's Mitra, which was a nine year chunk of my life, or whether um, it's, you know, some of some of those other cases that involved uh, kids or the elderly, um, all of them had had great meaning. Um, and yet one of the things that surprised me the most about retiring and moving into the private sector is that um, that, uh, you know, I was concerned I was going to lose all of those compelling, meaningful cases. And well, it's, uh, it turns out I'm dealing largely with the same sorts of things in the private sector. So, uh, you know, dealing with a phone from Missouri where uh, a, a kid was killed, a 15 year old kid in an accident, um, and they can't get to the to the data from the phone because the phone's so damaged dealing with a phone um that sat in the bayou in louisiana for three months after a homicide um and trying to get the data out of that so um so so yeah i mean the the great um thing about this work is that it comes with so many cases that have such great meaning to them um so so yeah, I'm I'm happy to say that 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 aspect of my job hasn't gone away. So it's good stuff. So you're now with Gilware Digital Forensics, and so kind of moving from law enforcement to law uh, from from law enforcement to the private sector. What are some of those other types of adjustments you had to make to your kind of workflow and processes? Well, I, I think uh, many of them are cultural um, changes, and in in some ways, um, this has been a really refreshing change for me personally. Um, the not to say that there was anything wrong with the culture at the police department, because I worked for an extremely progressive, um, forward-thinking, um, supportive police department um, with Madison PD. Um, and worked with super smart, um, very dedicated um, police officers um, and supervisors through my entire career. Um, but in the private sector, um, you know, the agility uh, of um, and, uh, of business is really exciting. Um, I'm surrounded by total geeks, which is amazingly wonderful. Um, and we're all fascinated by similar things, um, how things work, um, how data works, how it gets laid down on um, disks and on flash memory, how to get it out of that, um, that state and into a state where we can use it as human beings. Um, but also, you know, puzzles. And so there's, there's a lot of games and puzzles in this office space, which would not have existed in my police department. Um, there's, um, there's a lighthearted side to this, that, uh, this work that wasn't, um, wasn't front and center in, um, the police department so much. It's uh, a little more serious work there. Um, and I think the agility to change from one day um, to the next, what our central focus is going to be based on what customers need is is really um, refreshing to me. It, uh, it, you know, it, uh, police departments are large, um, generally large organizations. They can be small too, but they, they tend to operate uh, largely on tradition and sometimes uh, digital forensics doesn't necessarily fall within that, uh, that role of tradition. And so it's uh, when you need something, you're looking forward to next year's budget cycle, not what you need now. Um, and, uh, 
so the the first time I mentioned here needing something and it showed up in UPS two days later um, was eye-opening to me. <laughs> so it's, I don't have to wait for that budget cycle anymore to get what I need. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's a refreshing change. Do you think that some of those resource constraints that you had under law enforcement have now made you a more maybe honed or sharper private sector forensicator? Oh, absolutely. I mean, whenever you're working in a super challenging environment um, and have those um, those sorts of limitations and have to find ways um, to solve problems without um, without the easiest, most efficient and often most expensive tools, um, you become good at problem solving. And um, and those skills in the private sector mean that uh, that I'm not always looking for the easy way out um, as the best way out. Um, I, you know, it's it's honed my skills at um, making do with what I've got in front of me um, and and figuring it out, uh, um, you know, on the floor. So that's that that comes directly from law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had similar conversations with other folks in, in law enforcement. They say. Yeah, and you guys in the private sector have all this, and we've had to kind of you know, really get down to the hex level and you know, really kind of step back and, and, and really get more hardcore forensics at time due to the fact that that's all you have available. You don't have all the, I would say, somewhat of the, sometimes the shortcuts that you get uh, in the private sector. So, you know, kind of stepping back and looking at your, I would say, somewhat of your, your it's become, I think, your specialty and what you're known for around mobile devices. But when it comes to mobile devices as a piece of technology, are there particular concerns that you have around mobile devices in this kind of connected world that we have versus maybe other forms of technology? Oh, wow. Um yeah, I mean, I, I think I have the same concerns that a lot of people have. Um, these are devices that are always with us. Um, they're they're tracking all sorts of information about us in ways that we may not um, fully be aware of all the time. Um, and I, I think um, as a person of my generation versus versus being a millennial, um, I have concerns about, uh, privacy and people's rights to their privacy, whether it's, um, in where they're at or what they're searching for or their, um, or their shopping habits. Um, I think, um, we're coming to a place where we don't even know the ways that we're manipulated by our mobile devices and technology in general. Um, the, the, advertising, um, world pushes messages at us, um, that are so well suited to our interests and, um, needs that, um, that we don't consciously think about, um, that manipulation and how it's affecting our, um, our lives and, um, and what we want and what we want to do and where we want to go and who we want to hang out with, um, you know, and, you know, in a larger sense, I think, um, this is my concern about, um, about online communities that develop, whether it's on Facebook or, or other, um, 
other online communities, we get uh, into these um, echo chambers, um, politically, socially, um, and and otherwise, that um, sort of shut our eyes to the possibilities um, outside of that group of people. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is directed by um, subtle messages that are um, that are contained within um, what gets pushed to us. So, um, so I, I think. Um, I think that's that's all um, things that that concern me because it um, has an effect on the way we see the world around us, whether it's um, people of different uh, religions, races, genders, um, etc., or whether it's um, someone of a different political background. And I think we um, have come to a place where that started to affect our um, started to. It really does affect our. Um, our view of other people um, and of the world around us and the country we're living in and the world we're living in. And um, so I, I think that's been exasperated by phones because we're uh, connected so much um, to that world that it uh, really has an influence um, and affects our mood, affects our um, our outlook on our, our lives and um, and affects our relationships with other people. Um, so, uh, you know, my uh, my take on it is uh, to be aware of it as much as I can and to unplug whenever I can. Um, and uh, for me, that, that generally involves, um, you know, real-life relationships uh, that, that te- take place outside of technology um, and a lot of music because um, because music doesn't care what you're what your, um, <laughs> you know, what your, your race, your ethnicity, your religion, um, or your, um, your political background is, it's, um, it's a way to communicate with other human beings that, uh, you know, that's, that's fundamental and positive. So, um, so yeah, it's, phones concern me. A lot of it is about privacy and, uh, the way they're used to manipulate, uh, populations. So, yeah, I've seen more of it too. It's it's funny. I was at a, a lunch with two of the guys I worked with yesterday, and I just yeah, we 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 were at least talking, and we're we're very technology minded individuals. But looking around some of the other tables, seeing people just kind of three people sitting at a table, probably the only time they're getting out of the office together with each other, and these three guys sitting next to us were were all on their phones, in completely ignoring each other. And I've yes. done a lot of research recently to see how. You know the you know how it affects your cognitive biases, uh, your emotions, and how you really start getting into that. As you're saying, like those kind of bad emotional decision making, and it's only exasperated by the fact that people are overly plugged in at times and and possibly making some some not thoughtful or mindful choices at in the moment because they're just too dialed in. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've you know I I tend to do a little bit of research on trends now that I can and. Um, the the whole Kayla doll, um, you know, the smart doll who's a perfect companion for your lonely child. It's like written on the box. It's um, <laughs> nothing it's creepy really about that. No. <laughs> yeah, I yeah I I renamed her Creepy Kayla. That was the first thing I did when I was doing research. Um, but she wants to talk to kids about shopping. You turn her on. The very first thing she asks is, you know, after she introduces herself, is, "Do you like to go shopping? You know, what do you like to buy?" and um, and, you know, technology can be used for amazing purposes or it can be used, um, 
you know, for, for some pretty hardcore, um, marketing purposes. And I, I'm concerned that, uh, that the altruistic ways that it could be used, um, uh, get overshadowed by the, by the greed in this world. Sure. So it's, uh, there's, you know, I, I don't think parents who buy that, that, um, doll for their kids are necessarily, um, paying attention to the conversations she's having with them. Um, but I'd, uh, I'd bet that there are some requests to go shopping. <laughs> well, it's funny. The, the, the parents are probably too dialed in on their, on their phone and not paying attention to the kid that <laughs> was with creepy Kayla. But, yeah. um, you know, and I, I think there's another divide that happens. I mean, it, we've, we've heard about, uh, you know, digital divides and, and they're absolutely true digital natives and, um, digital immigrants. But, um, I, I think about, um, you know, the, the older folks that get left behind or, I mean, I, I find myself, um, my, my 77 year old mother's living with me now. She's interested in technology, but is, so slow at adopting new, you know, new apps, every new app or every new device is a new, um, thing to learn. And, um, and I find myself really impatient with slowing down enough to, <laughs> to, to say, uh, you know, just like that other app, here's what you do. Right? Like, um, I, I tend to shortcut it and say, just play with it. You'll figure it out. <laughs> but, but there's a, there's really that divide, um, between people who, um, who use and rely on and understand and just naturally can navigate the digital world and those who don't have that, um, that ability, but man, some of those people have a whole lot better people abilities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so, uh, we, we certainly have to find balance there. So. Yeah. It, it, kind of looking at mobile devices too, and some of the other types of threats that are out there, does it, you know, I've seen in some of the reports over the past couple of years that, you know, malware on mobile devices hasn't been a big entry point or threat vector that they know of. But is that is that true? Is is something like mobile malware something people need to be concerned about? I, you know, I would say, yes, it is something people need to be concerned about. I mean, obviously with other, like with other malware, um, there are many different threat levels of, of, of mobile malware. Um, but we're seeing that threat rise. I mean, I, you know, I used to totally, um, look past mobile malware, um, in exams until I started seeing it. And when I first started seeing it, what I was seeing was, uh, spyware, right? Like I'm, I, I was in law enforcement. Um, and what I was seeing is people who were stalking significant others by installing spyware on their phones. And, um, and once I started looking for it, I was blown away with how much I was finding, um, blown away to the point where I started saying to the tool manufacturers, Hey, why can't, why do I have to export this data to scan for malware? Right? Like <laughs> I need to know if it's here. And, um, and, and then I started realizing that, Hey, you know, some of this malware, um, is, um, 
is significant because it's capturing things that the tools aren't parsing um, that can be useful for investigations. So, um, so if the tool doesn't look at that app and parse that Escalate database that contains all of the GPS stuff and all of the text messages that the person thought they deleted, um, but that spyware is capturing it, then we certainly need to be looking in, in that database, right? Um, and it can do other cute things for us as examiners on, on in phone cases. If you find it in a child exploitation case, it's usually going to be as a result of somebody trying to download a video player. And if they're trying to play a particular video file that's got illicit content and they download um, a bad FLV player and then another bad FLV player and another bad FLV player trying to open that file – What's that tell us about intent to open that file? So, um, so I think whether or not it's a huge threat vector for um, for security reasons, it's certainly a valuable forensic artifact for our examinations of phone data. Um, and I think its its threat is definitely increasing. I mean, we've got. Um, We've got all, all sorts of um, mobile malware now from ransomware to, um, you know, to, to DDoS tools. I guess I don't know if I would consider those malware, but um, but nearly everything you can do on a traditional computer, you can do on a mobile phone. And, um, and those threats are um, becoming more, um, more concerning. Um, and, you know, if we look at... Um, Hummingbird, or we look at some of the others, they're they're a huge, hugely profitable um, situation for the folks who are um, proliferating them. So, um, so it's it's certainly something that uh, that we're not looking at enough. Um, on the Android side, there are some really great tools for us to use. On the iOS side, um, not so much, especially in the free realm. So. Um, you know, it's a little little harder proposition to look at um, at iOS based uh, malware, but um, but it's it's certainly um, a great place for for research. And um, like I said, the surprising forensic artifacts can be uh, can be pretty cool. Um, so yeah, and I figure from a law enforcement perspective, if we're looking for malware in our um, traditional computer forensics cases, we certainly ought to be looking for it in our um, mobile cases because it's as viable defense um, in either case. So, um, you know, it's just one we have to be aware of and ready to refute if it's not the culprit. And if it is the culprit, we ought to know that as well. So, yeah, I think I, I have this sneaking suspicion that it's mobile malware might be somewhat underreported because there's just not quite enough known about it. And people knowing, you know, the <laughs> IOCs aren't all there. So people are like, well, I don't see it. So this is not there. I'm like, yeah, doesn't mean yeah. it's not there. <laughs> you know, in my, in my SANS 585 class, we do a, a, the first day we talk about mobile malware and do some, some labs that are associated with it. And, uh, and I go through some statistics and, you know, the, the year to year reporting by, um, you know, the, the major security companies of mobile malware, you know, you, you can have like an 1800% increase in mobile malware. And I'm like, just remember, this is in detected mobile malware. If you're not looking for it one year and you start looking for it the next year, you're going to have huge increases. So, um, I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where there's, um, there's certainly a lot of it out there, but there are 
many, many, many mobile phones out there. So I, I don't think we really have a, a good idea of how big the problem actually is. And um, it's it's certainly a, a great area for research. Are, do you think there's a particular, particular mobile platforms that are more susceptible to these types of threats between iOS, Android, I guess for Android. those use Windows? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's that's that's sort of the 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 no brainer response it's um it is the most targeted platform and it's the platform for which there's the most um detected mobile malware um by far is there a particular mobile platform that you use that you feel more comfortable for either as a user and or security reasons oh boy well <laughs> i uh i was a diehard android user um, for many years, and then I started doing research on mobile malware and switched over to iOS. Um, I wouldn't say I'm as happy with iOS as I am with Android because um, you know it is a more open platform and more flexible to um, more computer-like, <laughs> right? But uh, but I I do feel um, like. Uh, like iOS is uh, is somewhat more secure. Um, they certainly do a nice job in uh, plugging security holes uh, from the standpoint of uh, of exploits we use to get into iOS devices um, on on a fast basis. So, <laughs> um, and and their app store is not quite as open um, in terms of um, in in terms of uh, you know ways to get malware um, distributed. So not to say it doesn't happen. I mean, we had Xcode Ghost and, and those sorts of things with iOS, but um, but it's a much rarer kind of story. Um, so, so iOS is what I'm using now. Um, I always feel like my um, iPhone is somehow a better um, computer for um, email and texting and um, chatting than it is a phone. <laughs> Um, especially sometimes when I'm speaking uh, with with people um, with other phones, it feels like my voice quality on my iPhone is is crappy. But um, but I'm an iPhone user. It ha it happens to everybody. I think for the same reasons. A lot of people. Well, some of the things you see in Android, maybe the iOS is a little bit it's more secure, but you do feel a little bit more trapped. I think it's the <laughs> yes, yes, it's less flexible. That's that's the truth. Yeah. So. You know, now it's kind of stepping away from from mobile devices specifically, but you know, we're kind of talking about different types of skills needed in the industry. And you know, there are, there's always people saying there's not enough skilled people to fill the needs. And one of the biggest observations, or maybe criticisms, have been about the lack of women in the field, and particularly when it involves around STEM programs. And I guess you know, it's you know, you're the you're the first female I've had on on the podcast after after eight episodes but is is that an accurate observation or is it maybe one of those things where we're, we're maybe reporting the numbers wrong um so i do think that there's a significant problem with recruiting and retaining uh, women in the dfir field and in um in giving um young women a chance um in stem fields in general um I remember back in 2002, uh, 2004, 2006, up to 2007, 
going to major industry conferences, CEIC, DOD, cybercrime, and, and some of those, and looking around the room and realizing that I was the only woman in the room, um, and or that there were a few others, but they were um, quote unquote booth babes <laughs> um, at some of those conferences. And then um, when I got to talking to some of those women and realized that um, one in particular was um, the inventor of the piece of equipment that was uh, being sold at the conference and that many of the men um, would look right past her and talk to the man at the booth rather than talking to her. Um, it was eye-opening. Um, I'm, I'm not going to out her, but she'll know <laughs> who I'm talking about for sure. Um, and it uh, was a real disappointment to me because I, I think um, women tend to think about um, some of these technical problems in, in slightly different ways or take a slightly different perspective that, uh, that sometimes um, comes up with... Uh, that with novel solutions and new ideas. Um, and I think those voices, um, aren't, uh, aren't particularly well listened to in our field. It has gotten, um, significantly better over time. Um, you know, you go to a, a SANS conference, um, these days and, um, many of the speakers and instructors and, um, and attendees are are now women. Um, we're not near fifty percent yet, I don't think, but um, but it's certainly significantly better than it used to be. And Sands, in particular, has done a really good job of of outreach to women um, and um, and mentoring has established some mentoring programs so that uh, women can feel um, supported in uh, what they're doing in the field. Um, I will also say that over time I've seen a significant amount of, um, of sec sexual harassment issues, um, in the field, um, or alternatively, um, conversations that just shut down when a woman walks into the area, um, and topics get changed. And, and that's, that's also, um, you know, in, in my opinion, not okay. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I, I think uh, young women are, are um, learning to speak out a little bit more and assert themselves a little bit more in this field. Um, and I do think that um, that that there's a, a lot more support um, than there used to be. Um, but I, I do think that it would be nice to to get uh, more women recruited into the field and um, and that um, if people are looking for skilled um skilled, smart, um, savvy people to do this work, um, they, they certainly, um, should be looking to, um, to young women to carry the torch. So, um, there's a lot of talent out there. There's a lot of, um, of talent that just gets overlooked. Um, and I, I would say as far as skills are concerned, skills can be learned. Um, and, what you need to be recruiting for is somebody who's um, who's curious and tenacious and not afraid to make mistakes and try over and over and over again, um, and and someone who will stick with a problem um, long term um, and work consistently towards getting it solved. And um, and there are a lot of really really um, bright, um, amazing women in this field who. Um, 
who stand out in those those areas. So, um, and a lot of up- upcoming ones too. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I look at it too somewhat. Uh, I try to step back, maybe look at it a little dispassionately too. Say, well, look at it from an economic development standpoint, right? If you if you have these are great paying jobs. Why would you not try to foster as many people as you can? Why would you try to push out half the people in a particular nation? I mean, America's got, what, 300 million people. And then we're looking at potentially both commercial and cyber warfare capabilities from countries like China and Russia with combined of 1.5 billion people. We can't really compete commercially or on a cyber military aspect. We're not trying to foster that involvement with Everybody, right. you know, to, to make it more exclusionary, it's only going to be more of a challenge. It which also leads me to think about, you know, are there uh, things about somebody's gender or gender identity that will influence their problem solving tenacity or, or approaches to solving problems? I think that's a very individual thing, but I think that in a lot of ways, when it comes to to STEM topics, forensics and network security included. Um, there are some biases that exist um, where we don't even think that women and girls are going to be interested in those topics, right? Like uh, it's um, it, the it, it blows me away um, to see um, that that we still have these same disparities, you know, down to the the grade school and middle school levels, and that's that's where we need to start working on the problem. Um, you know, we we can't um, we can't expect women to come in with a resume that um, reflects um, their experience in um, in you know STEM topics if we haven't supported that all the way from their early education. So, um, and and then we can't. Um, then also not give them a chance. So whether it's programming or whether it's gaming or whether it's, uh, you know, no matter what it is, um, you know, fostering that interest and, and, um, and giving girls, um, you know, unique opportunities, um, to, to express themselves in technology topics is, uh, is an important, uh, is definitely an important thing to do. But let's step back to some of the things that you do to also um, maybe foster some more involvement within the community in the, in the cybersecurity field. And one of the big things that I think you've contributed with is development of the mobile forensic course for SANS. How did that kind of get started and what was the impetus of that? So um, a number of years ago, um, SANS ran their um, their 563 course, um, which uh, was co-authored by Heather Mahalik and um, Owen Casey, and um, there were several other people involved. And that course ended up needing um, some significant updating. Um, we were going from an age of acquisition challenges for non-smartphones with different connectors and different, um, you know, driver and protocol issues, right? Like those were the things that you were trying to help people to, um, to work around, um, to smartphones where the challenges were all related to data, um, decoding and parsing data, and so that course really needed a, a major revamp. And um, at that point in time, um, Owen was moving on to some some other um, opportunities outside of the states, and um, and Heather um, 
reached out uh, to me um, and to an old uh, friend and colleague of hers, uh, Dominica Crognell, um, and um, and asked if I would have the the time uh, and energy <laughs> to help her revamp the class. And uh, so that's that's how it started. Um, and so this is the the first uh, class for the for Sands that's all um, woman developed, um, and um, so the, the, the Lee hasn't taught yet. That's Dominica's. She also goes by Lee. Lee hasn't taught the the course at all yet, but um, Heather and I um, have been teaching it for several years now. Um, it's probably one of the most updated classes because um, things change and move so fast in the mobile forensics world. Um, so the the content that we teach um, in the same course from from year to year can change significantly. Um, we're we're going into another major revamp um, this this spring. So, um, so we'll change our, our focus yet again a little bit. Um, and, um, and it's, it's been really a pleasure to work with, uh, with these two women who, um, you know, dedicate so much time and effort to, uh, to, to researching and keeping things up to date. And, um, and it's, it's been really pretty smooth sailing. Um, we have very, we don't, we don't have any conflicts with each other. We just uh, work as a team to get things done and, and in on time. And, um, the, the first time we wrote the course, we were under a, a huge time constraint, but, um, but, uh, produced a, a, a great class in, um, under pressure in a short period of time. And, um, and it's, it's just improved since then. So, um, so I'm happy to be a, real, a part of that project for sure. Is that a class you're also teaching as well? Yeah. So it's the 585 Advanced Smartphone Forensics course, um, and it, we we teach it. Uh, I don't know seven eight times a year for SANS um, all over the world, and um, it's uh, you know we we try our best to cover uh, all of the current topics and um, the major platforms. It's the, the only mobile forensics course I know of that covers mobile malware as well. Um, and so six days ends in a capstone. That's really a, a real life, um, problem, which we built using separate devices over, um, over the, the period of, um, three months time. So it's, um, a really rich data set that contains some problems that nobody solved yet, which is, um, pretty cool. So, um, so it's, um, it's a great class. Interesting. Now, as a teacher, are, are were there specific like skills that you needed to develop? You needed to develop uh, to do that. How did you develop them? Well, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I come from the world of policing, right? And um, and I have been a law enforcement instructor for um, for an, a number of years, um, teaching. Um, just you know basic evidence collection for digital evidence and um and, and some other topics that have to do with um cybercrime and um and the importance of collecting digital evidence and how we can use it in cases um but law enforcement classes are not necessarily the same as um as the student makeup of um of some of our um advanced smartphone forensics courses um many times you get into a class full of people who have 
vast amounts of experience and knowledge and um and those sans courses can turn into information and idea exchanges as much as they are uh, a teaching experience um so i love to teach because i learn um from students and and um get exposure to um to super smart um people um who you know spark my creativity as well so um classroom management can be um interesting right i mean you, you end up with uh, with people from different countries and different languages and um and a room full of uh you know 25 students or so when you're trying to teach um a topic and everybody's at different levels of learning um that that can be um, a, a real challenge um and you know you try your best not to leave anybody behind and on the other side not to let anybody get bored and um that's <laughs> hopefully everybody comes out the other side of those courses um having learned a lot um we now have a a certification that goes with the the course um the the GAC GASF certification um and so it's the the first um and only non-vendor specific mobile device forensic certification out there, um, which I think is a really positive step in our community. We're not teaching the tool, we're teaching techniques and giving people exposure to a bunch of the different tools um, out there, free and open source um, and paid tools as well. So um, so it's 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 been a really positive experience. Now, when I'm, I'm assuming people, as you mentioned, I, and I've had the pleasure of being in several SANS classes, and, and my facility actually helps host them, so I get to, a lot of exposure to them. So I get to see um, kind of that interesting dynamic of people all different levels and different careers. But I'm, I'm assuming people come up to you at different points during the classes and ask you for career advice. And what would you say is kind of the most common question to give or maybe the most common piece of advice you find yourself giving out to people that come up to you for in class asking for that type of advice? Um, I, I think probably the most common piece of advice that I give people is, um, to figure out what they love to do in this field, um, and embrace it. Um, and I try to tell them, you know, don't, don't try to model yourself after anybody else in this field. Um, it started out to be a pretty specific skill set. Um, but it has grown from there um, to embrace all sorts of different talents and mindsets and, and skills. And, um, you know, someone will come into, into the class and, and um, you know, say, well, what courses should I take to um, be the perfect candidate for XYZ job? And uh, I'll say to them, um, you know, develop the skill sets you're interested in learning um, and find what you're passionate about in this field and then sell yourself to the employers because they need these skills and talents um, all over um, the place. Um, you know, they may be looking for a specific skill set um, because they heard from somebody that's what they need. Um, but this is this is a wide open um area and it's uh the opportunities in this field are only going to grow they're not going to get smaller um and the ways we look at technology whether um it's cyber threats or whether it's um you know network security or whether it's mobile forensics or traditional machine forensics or network forensics um 
it's it's just going to grow. So develop your skill set um, and and put yourself out there as a candidate, even if the job doesn't seem like an absolute perfect fit. Um, just just put yourself out there with the set of skill sets you're passionate about, because that passion shows through. Um, and even if you're not a perfect fit, if you can if you can get to the point of of an interview, your, your knowledge, your passion, um, for your skill set will show through and, and be really attractive to an employer. So like I said, those new skills can always be taught. Um, but we can't teach the passion. We can't teach the tenacity. We can't teach the, um, the mindset of, um, of, um, of curiosity and, um, uh, of not being afraid of failure and embracing failure, um, and learning from it and moving forward. So, um, so that's the sort of advice I give. It's pretty open-ended. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, uh, I, I guess I'm now in a position where I will be hiring people eventually. That's a good problem to have. Um, but uh, when I look at those people, I'm not going to be looking at the letters behind their names, um, as the final defining, um, decision maker about whether to hire somebody. I'm going to be looking at, um, at what they're passionate about and, um, and what they've worked towards and, um, and how their attitude, um, towards this work, shines through. So, um, so certifications, um, may be important. They tell us, um, that somebody knows, um, you know, knows a lot about something, but I want to see that, um, continued and progressive curiosity and, and building of a skill set. Um, and pretty soon you find if you learn how to learn, um, in this subject area, um, you you can take on um you know multiple topics and um none of us can know everything about everything um but the more you learn about the different areas in this field um the more comprehensive your knowledge base is um you can see how the different topic areas interact with each other and and all are important so I, I would agree with everything you said. It's some sage advice. You know, and we, we've, I've talked to other folks on the podcast or in general about certifications, and that's it's it's kind of like it's your license to drive, but it doesn't necessarily mean you should get out there and try to win the Indy 500. You know, it takes some some time to kind of get through that barrier of entry to really be qualified to do certain things within the field. Yeah, this is an interesting topic to me because I um, am a person who while I was in law enforcement, decided at some point that I had been through all sorts of different, uh, you know, 40-hour trainings, um, either provided by National White Collar Crime Center or by search or by um, a conference I went to or by NCASE or by FTK or by, you know, XYZ. I had taken all these courses. I wanted certifications because that was a qualification I could use in court. Um, And then you have all of these hoops you jump through to keep those certifications up and the courses you go to start to feel really familiar. Hey, I learned this in that other course. This seems like I, you know, they could have taken this section out of, um, this other vendor's course. And you start to realize, Hey, if, if I want to learn something, um, I need an education. I don't need training. Um, and to, to find that level of, um, to find that level of, um, of education, um, 
you can start looking at master's programs um, either through University College Dublin or um, one of the stateside um, programs. Uh, I, I happen to choose Dublin because, uh, well, for a number of reasons, but it, it found me. And, you know, if you ever have to do something and you want to do something, mixing those two things together is a great strategy, right? Like, I want to go to school. I want to go to Ireland. Um, <laughs> what a great opportunity to do both. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, you know, th- those, those strategies are, are always successful in life. If you can find something you have to do and combine it with something you want to do, that's, that's a great way to, to, to live it. Um, the, uh, but what I found was that I, I wanted to get the master's degree because the certifications, um, while I held them and while they mean something, um, weren't, um, permanent, I guess, for lack of another word, right? Like uh, once, once you earn your master's degree in something, it, it means something forever. Certifications get stale and old. Um, and, and so that became my goal. And again, it's about, um, progression, right? Like it's about progression in what you're doing. If you start as um, an intern and move on to a full-time job and then um, get specialized training and then, you know, get certified and then decide you want to get a degree, that shows me that that person is truly dedicated through their lifetime to progressive um, learning in their, in their area. And, um, and that's the kind of dedication you want to find in an employee. Uh, yes, it, it, passion goes a long way, and I think as as Chris Pogue, who is on episode one, had, had adequately quoted you as you know a chihuahua on a pork chop. You know, you want to kind of <laughs> get on something, bite it, and be aggressive. Yeah, well, that was that was actually a quote I used in a in a keynote speech um, at a at a Sands conference, and it's uh, I it's. Uh, one of uh, one of of many analogies I've used over time to 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 say to people this is this is the sort of tenacity you have to have right it's um, you can't give up easily and um, and that to a certain extent is just how somebody is built um, you know there are those of us who um, who just don't have the ability to really let go of a problem. I can set it to the side. Right. But, um, but, uh, um, at, at some point, um, whether it's in my sleep or taking a shower in the morning or, um, on the drive to work, a new idea about how to approach a problem will come into my head. And, um, and eventually one of those crazy ideas, um, works. I mean, it's the, um, part of this is about inspiration and synchronicity, right? Like it, it just, maybe that's the art everybody describes to, uh, or part of the art, um, that everybody describes as, um, forensics being, you know, science and art mixed. Um, but, uh, the, the, the tenacity to think about these problems and to let them rattle around in the back of your brain until, um, somehow from, 
<laughs> some unknown inspiration, a new idea arises, um, and to embrace that and not just say, ah, I'm crazy. Right. <laughs> That's, and so, I mean, I, I was talk about, um, and, and we'll be submitting a paper by the way, we'll see if it'll get accepted, but I was talk about the similarities between music and forensics and this, um, this ability to, um, to take, you know, patterns and meanings and symbols and uh, make sense out of them, um, is very similar between the two, as is the inspiration for, um, being able to, to jam at it, right. Being able to take things, you know, and combine them in different ways and come up with, um, with new and different solutions. And, um, so we need people that are, are smart and tenacious, but also who have, flexible brains and think about problems in, in different ways, because man, these problems are not going to stop coming. Um, and, and they're not going to be, um, based in the same, um, the same things as they were yesterday. Now solutions from 10 years ago might be part of the inspiration for the solution tomorrow. Right. Um, and so you can't just toss out everything you ever learned, but, um, nor should you, because, you know, that's, that's the recipe for the next for the next inspiration. Definitely. Well, Cindy, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. And now where can people find you these days online? Um, so I am, you know, sort of rarely sometimes on Twitter at, at Cindy Murph. Um, I, I, tw- I tweet mainly at, uh, at SANS conferences, um, and find myself falling off otherwise. Otherwise you can, uh, Certainly get to me um, at gilware.com slash forensics. Um, I have a blog there now called uh, Murphy's Law, um, doing some some uh, sort of overviews of case studies that have come through um, our lab here and um, talking about um, digital forensics just in terms of um, its applications, both in law enforcement and the private sector and, um, you know, my my opinions on things, I'm, I'm full of those. Um, <laughs> of course, they'll, they're also changeable. I'm not, uh, I'm not a snob by any means, but, uh, but I, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. So. Great. I'll put that all in the show notes. Well, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I thank you very much. It was really fun, Doug. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.